0: Many times people people ask me, especially when they're new to the church, Pizza with the Pastor, for example, they'll ask, Where does the name Five Oaks come from? Is there some spiritual significance from the Bible? You know, to the five oaks, to which I always look at them and say, Well, maybe if you don't know what it is, you don't belong here. <laughs> I've never said that. Uh, and it's not, it's, there's no spiritual significance. This, there, five, there used to be five oaks back here, and so there were, those, uh, those oaks, and this was known as the Five Oaks Ranch. But I think it was in 1999, some straight line winds came through here and knocked down three of them. 100 mile an hour winds, sustained 100 mile an hour winds, and it's just right through. It also went, the line went right through where we were meeting at the time, which was at Lake Middle School. Back then it was Lake Junior High. And so that morning, uh, this had happened, I don't remember when, the night before or in the morning, I'm not quite sure. But that morning, after services, we came outside and people were all over the neighborhood, on their houses with ladders, uh, boarding things up. Uh, the winds were so powerful that some garages actually shifted. And so it was just an incredible winds, and if you had been uh, foolish enough, to not be in your basement <laughs> once you heard those winds and have been looking through a window and you'd look outside, you would not be able to see the wind, right? You think, yeah, I can see, look, look how windy it is. You can see the results of the wind, but you can't see the wind. You see things flying around, you can feel the house shaking, you know, you, you're not out there so you can't even feel the wind. You're inside where you can feel the results of the wind. And the wind would be, in many ways, it would be completely invisible to you, but the wind's reality and its presence would be evident. Uh, so if you were watching a powerful storm through a window in a secure place, you would not literally see the wind, nor would you hear it, but you wouldn't doubt the wind. You wouldn't doubt the presence of the wind. So today we're, considering, uh, we're continuing our series from Esther, and we're in week three of that series, and we're calling the series Finding Our Way Back to God. And over the last two weeks, We've noted a couple times, one of the things that Esther is famous for, the book is famous for, is the fact that in the entire book, it's the only book in the Bible, or in the entire book, ch- 10 chapters, God is never mentioned. <laughs> but it doesn't mean God is absent. He can be actually detected everywhere. And God's invisible hand is at work constantly in Esther. But you have to think of it in terms, uh, the terms of like watching a wind. <laughs> you, you have to see its results while looking, in a sense, from a secure, build, from a secure building, knowing, knowing what that wind is. Now, this is really important for us because there are many times in our life where we are going through circumstances and difficulties that leave us wondering, where is God? What is he doing? What is he not doing? Does he even care? Has he abandoned us? That sort of thing. And this is a theme that is prevalent in the Bible. So it's a theme that we return to again and again. And hopefully each time as we return to it from another passage, we get a little bit of a different perspective on how it is that God can be at work in situations like that and how we can be confident, that we can go forward confident knowing that God is present and God is alive and that he is at work in whatever difficult circumstances we're in. And so hopefully we'll get some of those new insights today. And not only that, I think we'll get some other uh, insights that will help us Make it not so much about us and, you know, you know uh, whether, whether God is helping us or not, but get us thinking more in terms of his kingdom and his glory and making that our priority no matter what it is that we're, we're, that we're experiencing. We're also going to stop along the way as we go through the text and we're going to look at an unrelated topic. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in it, but it's a timely topic, uh, especially going into this really heavy political season. So, I uh, invite you to open your Bibles, please, and uh, open to Esther chapter 2. We're still in chapter 2. And on, in our Bibles, if you don't have a Bible with you, we do have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. It's page 494 in that Bible. And, um, and if you're brand new with us, hopefully you got the new here brochure, and inside there is a sermon application guide where you can take notes if that helps you. And you can pick one of those up every, every week as you come in. All right, so we're going to pray. We're going to ask God to illuminate our minds and our hearts, and then we'll jump in to today's passage. Father, thank you so much for giving us your word. Thank you so much for your presence. Thank you for a book like Esther, where all the signs of you being there are there, if we're willing to look, if we're willing to bring um, your story to bear on that situation. and Help us to to think in the same terms with our own circumstances. Open our hearts and our minds to what it is that you want to teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Esther and Mordecai. I've just got to give you a quick background just in case first week here. Maybe you're not familiar with the story. Maybe it's been a long time since you read the story. So Esther and Mordecai uh, are two of the main Jewish characters. We're going to be reading about them in just a moment here. And they are Jews that are living in the Persian Empire in exile. And they are to a great degree, as we noticed the last couple of weeks, they are assimilated into their culture. They're good, they're good Persians. And they've pretty much lost the religious distinctives of their faith. Uh, they're still Jewish, and they're still culturally Jewish, but they've lost a lot of their religious distinctives. And Esther has become the queen. Mordecai, her guardian, is a Persian official. So we are going to uh, begin in verse 19 of chapter 2. And... Um, here we go, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her, to do, uh, told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time, Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate. Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers were guarded, uh, who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. Interestingly, a Greek historian from the, shortly after this period, Herodotus, tells us that this particular king was murdered in his own bed. As a result of a conspiracy by one of his assistants so his fear of this kind of thing happening uh as you're going to see happening again are quite well based so verse 23 and when the report was investigated and found to be true the two officials were impaled on poles all this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king all right very important for the story that this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king, very very important for what happens next and what happens later on in the story. Um, so there is a lot of uh, one commentator uh, brings out, in fact, a couple of commentators bring out the fact that there is a lot of writing things down in the Book of Esther, and it's like a this this theme that re- weaves through 63 times things are written down, and one historian has done some some analysis of that has discovered that every single time a law is written down it works against people. It always works against people, uh, specifically it hurts people based on their gender or their ethnicity every single time. Uh, this kind of thing is a little different and this is going to turn out for good, this writing down. It's going to take a while before we get there. And so um, one commentator says this, too often in the book of Esther when official words are written people are marked for death. And it's a stark reminder, that to me was a stark reminder that our words are extremely powerful. Spoken words, but also written words. And they have incredible harm, incredible power and potential to harm people very, very deeply. Now, in the story so far, as it continues to unfold, we see people writing down pronouncements we saw in week one, just a ridiculous pronouncement that was made there. Um, There are laws that are going to be written down that are absolutely cruel and even murderous. And pretty soon in the story, like next week, as we get there, uh, there's going to be a law that's written down that's genocidal. Uh, There is going to be a law that's written down to try to wipe out all the Jews from the Persian Empire. Now... Three things to note about all of this. It was about the same time I had to blow my nose yesterday. Um, Arthur, could you? Uh all right. So, um, three things are happening here that, uh, that I think relate to, to us today. One is, when these words are written down it's seemingly, it's like these people are living on, you know, this unreality. They're up, you know, in their castle, and they're writing these laws, and some of them murderous, and with no thought about the impact that's actually going to have on real people. Like, the real people don't really matter. The second thing is, is that they oftentimes write horrible words down in order to get the attention of the king or their peers. They want everybody to go, Yeah, okay, this person really, really, that's tough. Okay, this person really believes in the kingdom. And then thirdly, they write hateful and murderous things about other people and even toward people to try to destroy them after only getting one side of the story without getting the whole story. Now, this is so much like today, and as we enter a political season, i got one friend who's like, I feel like I have to do a whole series before we go into the political season again. Um that I I just thought I'd spend a little bit of time here um, because this sounds super familiar. For example, we have a tendency, uh, every single one of us has a tendency to say things in writing that we would never say in person. Uh, If we just have to go across a a hallway to go see the person instead of sending them an email or a text, (laughs) that's just about enough time to go, oh, okay, okay, I got to pull back. When you see someone face to face, unless you're in the, you know, passion of anger, you usually will be a lot more careful with your words than you would be when you hastily write things down. Have you ever written the email that you, you know, an angry email that you wished you hadn't? You could never go back and read because you're just so embarrassed that you did it. I've done it. Um, So words can be very powerful. There's a term that's used today also uh, that kind of parallels what's happening there and with us, a term that's used by sociologists called uh, virtue signaling. Maybe you've heard the term before been around for a while but now it's used a lot to talk about how people signal their virtue to their own subculture and um, and they usually do it by taking a stand you know they're gonna take a stand on social media on something and oftentimes people will say that's so courageous and it's not courageous at all the people who talk about virtue signaling it's not courageous at all because they're they're speaking to people that are think just like them. (laughs) In fact it's it's a way of elevating within your community. Now I don't want to say that virtue signaling and I think there's, there's kinds of virtue signaling, or there's actions that we can take that can look like virtue signaling and maybe in some ways are virtue signaling that we need to do. We need to be examples to each other, right? So, you know, if virtue is something that comes out of a relationship with Christ and we want to pass that on to the next generation, in a sense, we need to virtue signal. Okay, so I'm not saying virtue signaling is all bad. I'm just saying that, that when, when we do that, in ways, especially attacking opponents, people who disagree with us, and we do that on social media. It, there's nothing courageous about it because almost everyone who is reading it are people who agree with you, and um, and so we all do it to some degree or another in that way. I've written blog posts that, you know, later I'm like, oh, I wish I hadn't. I wish I hadn't written that, and. Um, and it's just, uh, it, it's, 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 it's not a good thing. And once you're aware of it, and that's what I'm trying to do is just raise the awareness. Once you're aware of it, you're gonna look at some things. You're gonna go, mm, I'm not sure if I'm gonna enter into that string of comments. Oh, I feel compelled to say something. Uh, you know, what's really happening here? And uh, hopefully that'll help you to stop, think, and be careful about not, and that's what's happening in that court. It's a bunch of virtue signaling. There's all kinds of virtue signaling. When I was in college dating my wife, Lois, we went to her uncle and aunt's house, and we're sitting there, and partway into the conversation, I've told the story before, some of you have heard it, partway into the conversation, Uncle Harry says to me, so Henry, where are you from originally? I said, I'm from my Miami area. He goes, oh, the Cubans have absolutely ruined that area. <laughs> and, uh, and Lois goes, uh, Uncle Harry, Henry's Cuban. And you know what he said next. Well, they're not all bad, you know, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and so what, what that was is he thought I was going to agree with him. And he's like, hey, you know, let's, let's enter together into this thing and how the Cubans have ruined everything. Funny thing is I've noticed as I've gone back to Miami over the years that the old Cubans have been there for 30 years, 40 years. Say that about the new Cubans. <laughs> And uh, and about the Haitians and about the Central Americans and everything like that. It's just, it's, it's hilarious how that all goes around. There is no group or subculture that's free from extreme forms of virtue signaling, including Christians. No group. Doesn't matter what race you are, we all do it. And let's, let's see it for what it is when we're doing it in that way. We're just trying to get pats on the back, we're trying to elevate, that kind of a thing. Then there's another term that maybe you've heard that's talked about a lot with regard to social media, it's echo chamber. And um, the whole idea behind echo chamber is that, is that, well, in social media the algorithms they're not meant to do this in particular, but they result in this, is that because of your likes and dislikes and what you comment on and all that sort of thing, that it eventually goes in that direction which means you're only hearing from people that primarily agree with you, and you think, no, I, I listen to other sides. You listen to other sides on shows that are on your side, where they cut them off, don't let them talk, don't bring the biggest, the, the absolute best defender on, you know, it's that kind of a thing. And so we live in echo chambers. That's what was exactly what's happening in this text, is they're living in an echo chamber where everybody agrees. Everybody's, if there's a dissenter in the group, no dissenters aren't allowed in the group because they're considered to be, you know, uh, you know, terrible, and that's that's how it is today in many many places. You you almost can't be a dissenter. So our day is not that different from Esther's. We saw that again last week. Uh, like them, our world, our words have incredible power to harm people. Now, for sake of time, last night I read it all. I'm not going to read it all, but it's in your outlines. James three three verse 3 through about 12, but I just want to read a few verses and listen. A few verses from that. James writes, he's, he's already ta- been talking for six verses about the tongue, our words. He says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison if that isn't a warning if we believe the scripture is the word of god if that isn't a warning about our words i don't know what else would be he's not talking about people out there he's talking to us with the tongue we praise our lord and father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in god's likeness hold that thought for a little while again i'm not pointing fingers I've done all of this, and uh, the chances with me these days is more it's going to happen verbally than it's going to happen in writing, but um, we we need to get to the point where we're inviting Jesus and the Holy Spirit into all of our communication, from the email, to the blog posts, to the social media posts, to everything that we do, we need to be inviting Jesus Holy Holy Spirit to guide us in that area of our life. Okay, back to the story. Um, Look at verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. The reason I hesitated like that is because that's exactly what the readers would have done. It was like, what? Mordecai just saved the king. Persian kings were known, I mean, actually, really well known in historical annals for greatly rewarding people like Mordecai, people who had benefited the kingdom. But instead of Mordecai getting honored, this guy out of nowhere, Haman. And it doesn't tell us why. Might be related to this, might not. We don't know. All of a sudden, he's up there. And then it says, all the royal officials of the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not, deal, would not kneel down or pay honor. Now, you might think that Mordecai's just angry. Why is this guy getting elevated? And I haven't gotten my prize. But the Jews reading this story, the original audience for this story, know what's happening. They know that he's not bowing because Haman is an Agagite and Mordecai is, Mordecai is a Jew. Just completely lost to us, but they would know this. And before long, it's going to be made clearer, verse 3, where it says, Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it uh, about it, to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. So what's happening here is Mordecai is all of, a sudden, all of a sudden getting some backbone about his faith. It may not be the most well-directed backbone, but it is some backbone about his faith. He's told somebody that he's Jewish for the first time. It's taken them days to get that out of them, by the way. It says day after day, they kept saying Why? And eventually, he says, because I'm a Jew. Now, again, the original readers, that's all you need to say. You don't, um, you don't need to explain the whole background to it. Um, because a lot is contained in those words. And I don't, have to go, I, I, can't, I don't have time to go into detail, but let me just very quickly give you a summary. Uh, the Agagites and the Israelites and God of Israel were locked in conflict. Uh, since the exodus. Uh, so, um, uh, the, and the reason was because the Agagites, when the Israelites had left Egypt and they're wandering in the desert, the Agagites would come in and would attack Israel like terrorists. They were like terrorists. They would, instead of a frontal attack or even from the side, they would come from behind and they would get the weak, those who were at the end of the line as this, you know, gigantic group of tens of thousands of people are moving through the wilderness. So they would be killing mothers and children, the elderly, and that's how it's described in Exodus. It was like, it says, it uses a phrase, cut off your tail. You know how the aggregates, cut off your tail. And so um, to add to it, and again the reader would start putting the things together to add to it, Later in the story from Exodus, you have the first king of Israel, King Saul. And King Saul is sent by God to go and destroy the Agagites because God had put a curse on them for what they had done, and they've continued in their ways. And so he goes to do battle with them, and he captures the king. And he's supposed to execute the king, but he doesn't. he holds on to the king because he wants to get a king's ransom. And that is the last straw for God. God has been very, very... Upset with Saul's reign and with his lack of coming to him and with his lack of doing things in his way. And that is like the last straw. And that's, that's basically when God says, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with Saul. So as you can see, oh, oh, and one more thing. <laughs> Earlier on, we were introduced to Mordecai. Who is Mordecai related to? Saul. <laughs> A Benjamite. He's in the lineage of Saul. So all of this stuff is coming together um, to, t- for, for the reader. As you can see, there's a a lot that's going on here for the reader informed by the rest of the story of God. Uh, So pick up in verse 5, where it says, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. And next week we see what he did in his rage. Uh, It leads him to seek to not only wipe out Mordecai, but to wipe out everyone uh, that is of his lineage, all, all the Jews. And, um, and so they actually get a law written as these people get together in their little echo chamber, doing all their virtue signaling, not thinking about real people and what that looks like. They write a law to wipe out all the Jews. How do we see the invisible hand of God at work in our circumstances, especially when it's difficult to see God? The first one is we have to enter into the larger story of God. That's what we have to do. We have to enter... The larger story that God is weaving. And by entering the story, what I mean is we need to remember we're part of a different story. The world is giving us all kinds of stories. Our society gives us all kinds of stories. This is what life is about. This is what the goal is. This is what the end looks like. This is what your life is about. This is what your your priorities are. But the Bible comes with a different story. And so we have to enter into that story if we're going to see God in our circumstances. The author of Esther drops all kinds of clues and glimpses of God's hand at work all over the book, but it's there to be seen only by those who know the story of God. This this came this became clear to me uh, like never before. I've studied Esther many many times, and like never before this week. Uh, remember. It's a r- book written by a Jew for Jewish people. Very obvious. When you think, uh, after I explain it to you, you're going to go, oh, yeah, <laughs> duh. He has high expectations of his readers, as most Jewish writings did. Has high expectations of his readers. Esther is a story within a much larger story, God's story. And the author expects his readers to know the story. He does. He expects them to know the story. And so if they know the story as they should, he's going to be throwing in throughout this entire book keywords and phrases and ways of telling the story that have multiple parallels with other stories Daniel's story, Joseph's story, and other stories throughout the Bible. All the key words are there. Just as an example. We noted last week I think it was last week yeah, Esther wins the favor of the guy in charge. Of all the young virgins who have been gathered for the king and then Esther goes into the king he she wins the favor she's spoken of as someone who is a person who wins people's favor now in the Joseph story Joseph keeps keeps winning the favor of different people same language in the Daniel story Daniel wins the favor of the guy that's in charge of him just just like with Esther wins the favor of that person, and wins the favor of King Nebuchadnezzar, wins the favor, and you see that constantly. Um, And in the Joseph story, in the Daniel story, it's made explicit, very explicitly, that God is behind their ability to win favor. I mean, you you, you realize with Joseph, for example, he can interpret dreams, right? That's how he, that's part of how he wins favor. He, He can't do that on his own. He even says, I don't, I don't do this. The God who I worship is the one who interprets dreams. So don't ask me. I'm just going to tell you what he, you know, shows me. And Daniel, the same kind of thing. It's miraculous. It's God is at work, and the author tells us God is at work. Same exact language. In fact, favor, the word for favor, is one of the most important theological terms in the entire Old Testament. You understand? The writer expects the reader to get... What's come To make the connections to what's come before. Among Christians today, as well as many of the Jews like Mordecai and Esther in Esther's day, there's not much talk today and then about God's providence. That no matter how bad your circumstances are, the circumstances of the world, that God's hand is at work behind the scenes. There is an aversion to that type of idea. I mean, there's a whole... People that are just crashing in their faith by trying to remove God from anything that would seem to, be, um, to, to, to reflect badly on him from a worldly perspective. And so, um, so we don't like to talk about, uh, about providence. When we do talk about God's providence and we don't use that word, what we do and we say, oh yeah, God is at work, we think of it in terms that God is at work to make things work out for us. That's not biblical, a biblical concept. Uh, One commentator says this. He says, God's providence is about his kingdom work. This always requires God's people to focus on what is central. Remember when Jesus, speaking in roundabout ways about providence, he says, put all your focus, your priority, what's first in your life should be my kingdom. That's what it should be and righteousness. This always requires God's people to focus on what is central. God's love is promised. Comfort and fairness are not. That's contrary to what a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of people are out there writing books about and that sort of thing, but it's not, it's not biblical. It's based on other people's ideas. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy how it is. Esther is like a story that's written for us today. We live in a culture that is distancing itself more and more from any talk about the, uh, an overall story. We talked about this last week. It's difficult. It's not impossible. A lot of people actually are drawn to it. But in the overall culture, as it comes across in the media, as it comes across in the university, as it comes across in certain places, the idea that there is an overarching story that God is about starts with creation and new creation is considered to be. Don't, don't even talk about that. That sounds very exclusive. But this book, and for them living in that world, because they couldn't come in and say, oh, there is only one God, and he he is up to something, and this is what he's doing. They couldn't do that in the Persian Empire. You were okay having your God, as long as you didn't claim that your God was the only God. But this book was for them, as it is for us, kind of a wink-wink. God is invisibly at work, even though few want to say it and few want to acknowledge it. It's there. It's there everywhere for the reader who understands the story. You say God is not mentioned, but he's referenced constantly because it's part of a larger story. We have to do that in our own lives. We have to put ourselves in that larger story. There are just so many ways that God seems hidden in our lives, absent in our lives, but the reality is he is at work. We have to remember what he's told us in his story. Number two, we have to reject victimhood. I wish I could spend more time in this. I can't. Mike Cosper, which I've referenced several times in his book on Esther, goes into great detail. I'm going to try to just summarize it uh, quickly for you. But I think it's a, a point that's, um, that's necessary for us to get if we're really going to be able to see the invisible God at work in our lives. So Mike Cosper makes the point that in our culture, the claim to be a victim is often, not always, but is often wielded like a sword and often becomes just another way of grasping for power. It's, it's a pretty strong argument he makes. And he's well aware that there are real victims in our world, it's, and, um, but he just wants to raise an awareness that every time we play the victim card, what we're doing is, in our lives, and we all do it, every single one of us do it, every time we play the victim card, what happens is, is that we oftentimes use it as a weapon to try to get power over the people around us. And then he warns us as believers, don't play the victim card in a culture that is increasingly getting secularized. Um, there's another one of those raising the awareness because you're going to, especially over time and if you're aware and if you're reading, it's very easy to read stuff that just seems to be going against Christianity in our culture and the, the, we're victims he said, don't, don't play that. He tells a story. It's a wonderful story about his church, Sojourn Church, and something that happened to them. Sojourn Church is a church in Louisville, Kentucky. I've been there many times. Uh, pastor Henry, Henry Michael, our youth pastor, uh, attended there for many years and then served as their youth pastor before he came here for many years. And it's a church we've learned a lot from, um, but Cosper explains how in Sojourn, early on, they had bought an old elementary school, had been in there, crazy, crazy building, low ceilings where they would meet for worship. And uh, it was just, it was just wild, uh, but thousands of people showed up and they were young and they were vibrant and they wanted to make an impact on the world. And so one of their dreams for their space, it, they called it the 930, that was the number on the building, um, the 930 building, one of the dreams was to turn it into something that would serve the community. And they decided to turn it into an art space and they opened an art center. And so they opened it up. They had two galleries, two music venues, a studio space for artists there. And they opened it up to all artists in the community, not just Christian artists, all artists in the community. And, um, and so uh, in, in do and everything was going really well for a couple of years. Concerts, uh, art exhibits, uh, they were serving the community which is what they wanted to do. And then a newspaper, a local newspaper, ran a front page story about them. And this was the title and about all you need to hear. Smells like the Holy Spirit. They're young, involved, and socially aware, and think being gay is a sin. The story tried to make them look like bigots with a hidden agenda. And all they wanted to do was serve their community and love their community. And they were being... They were being thrown under the bus for holding biblically orthodox views on sexuality. So uh, he writes this in his book. He says, even now, about 10 years later, I feel tremendous amount of emotion about about this experience. I look back at the 930 as a gift our church was giving to the community around us. No strings attached, and its demise breaks my heart. So many untrue things were said about us. The neighborhood lost a source of art and culture, and trust me, that neighborhood needed, needed that. All because we held orthodox beliefs about sexuality. He's asked, would you, been asked many times, would you do it again knowing what you know now? He says, absolutely, because of the impact that it had. I would do it again. He said, but Christians, but again, he makes the call, he says, you, we need to be taking risks for Jesus. We need to be going and impacting our community. We're supposed to love our city. And many times there are going to be consequences for our beliefs. But don't ever play the victim card because you will lose, you will lose the influence you can have. When you play the victim card, it's a play for power often. It's a play for power. Don't go for the power. And I wholeheartedly agree with him. You clearly see that a big part of God's providence in the book of Daniel and the story in Joseph is seeing how God places his man, or in this case his woman, in strategic places for his kingdom purposes. They often suffer, but if they claim victimhood, they would have lost their influence. And it's the same with us. What happens a, t- a lot of times, it's not just that we lose face with those who we're trying to reach and love, who may hate us. But we also start playing games in our minds where we start justifying pulling back and keeping to ourselves and not doing what God has called us to do in the community. Number three, how are we gonna see the providential, um, the, the hand of God, the invisible hand of God? It's to trust God in his providential care. And I've talked about this many, many times. Only have one thing to say here and I say it frequently, God's providence is not comforting. God's providence is not comforting at all. God's providence is discouraging, devastating for people who don't care about his kingdom purposes. But if we're a part of what Jesus is about, if we love him and we see how, just how much he loves us, It's a whole different story. When we're all in for his purposes, God's providence, we we recognize that God's providence is all in for us. It may not work out well in our current situation, but all will work together for good to those who are called according to his purposes. We'll leave it there for now. Let's pray.